Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Our next guest is Nick Fishman. He's Vice President of Employee Screen IQ. And he's here today because I ran into an interesting situation a couple of weeks ago. A company called us and said that they had hired an individual from uh, India, uh, and when they brought him over, they discovered that his credentials were all false, but they had spent a great deal of money. And over the last couple of weeks, I found that other companies have faced the same problem. So I went to one of the bigger background screening companies, Employee Screen IQ, and I was lucky enough to get Nick Fishman, vice president of the company, uh, to come on board and, and talk about background screening in general and background when screening when you're talking about someone uh, from overseas. But as we do with every guest, we first ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves. Nick, welcome to the program, and the floor is all yours. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, we've uh, been here at Employee Screen IQ for about 15 years now, um, serving clients of all sizes, um, primarily mid- to large-sized organizations, over 3,000 of them across the country and around the world. Um, it's been a big passion of mine for years now, and um, I'm happy to join you. Well, Nick, uh, I'm, I'm glad you did because, um, as I say, here's a company that spent thousands of dollar, dollars to, trying to identify an in- engineer that they could bring on board into a highly specialized, only to find out when he arrived and after less than three weeks on the job that his credentials were uh, – faults, or let's put it this way, considerably exaggerated, and he certainly didn't have the knowledge that they had hoped for. So having said that, Nick, what could a small business do to avoid this situation again? Well, the number one thing that they could have done ahead of time is to conduct proper due diligence before they extended the job offer and certainly before they brought the individual over um, from India. Um, and the way that they could go about doing that is to, um, in fact, perform an employment and education verification, um, which would certify the credentials that the candidate has, had represented. Um, the, the, that takes place um, in, in, in a number of different ways. I mean, to, as far as education is concerned, um, the candidate would simply tell you 
where they got their degree from, and they uh, they would provide you in India. Uh, in uh, they require. We have an we have our next guest on, Cam Gall Gaffey. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much. This is Dan Gaffney with Bouchton. I, I know, and we're we're really anxious to hear from you, uh, Cam. Uh, before we we ask every guest this question, before we do anything else, tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we talk about anything else. Well, I live in Chicago. I um, have a couple of kids, and uh, Chicago is a great city. I love, love being here. Uh, but I grew up in Wisconsin on a, on a dairy farm. So uh, I've come a long way to the world of accounting, and I'm a CPA and, and working um, to, to help other people find great opportunities and employment. How, uh, how did you come up with the idea of vouch, uh, vouching? And uh, before before we talk about the um, uh, constant itself, because um, on-demand workforce seems to be the uh, rule for the future. But how did you uh, how did you get involved? I was laid off from a public accounting firm in January of 2009, which was a, a rough time for the employment sector. Uh, after searching for uh, new employment for several months and not finding something, I started my own independent contracting uh, as a as a, an accountant CPA and worked for several businesses and realized that the current staffing model um, wasn't working for me. I it takes a substantial chunk out of what an employer is paying and contractors sort of barely scrape by in a lot of cases because staffing firms are making a great profit at the expense of both the employer and the contractor. So now, tell us about your firm, which is one of the, um, what I think is one of the best out there. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, it's an online platform. Uh, it takes the staffing firm out of the middle. So it's free to join for employers and for contractors and they the contractors create a profile similar to an online resume um, employers can join for free search for contractors that meet their criteria for their need and contact the contractor directly and discuss rate and we provide a contract they can download and execute with the employer we also provide professional liability insurance and uh, and uh, any other insurance that may be required by the employer as part of the engagement, um, and we'll, we work that out with the employer. And uh, we, we handle the invoicing, billing, payment, and um, it, it makes it easy for the contractor. Okay. Uh, do you specialize in any fields? Good question. We started out in accounting and finance because that's what I know as a as a CPA. So we launched it in uh, 2012, late 2012, in accounting and finance. And many employers asked us if we could build it out to other sectors, including information technology, human resources, and operations. 
So we built a platform out, and we're going to be launching it in early January to serve all all sectors, any, any area that an employer may need someone. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the, the reason I have on the program is many people think that um, the gig economy, so-called, will, will be the uh, future of many people. What do you think about that? And, and perhaps also explain what I mean by the gig economy. <laughs> uh, well, the gig economy, uh, also the freelance economy or... Um, in a lot of world worlds, uh, it's considered contract employment. Um, so not permanent employment, but uh, employment on a project basis or hourly basis. Uh, the gig economy has been uh, growing significantly for the past, well, since the Great Recession, since 2009, 2010, as, as businesses realized, they had downscaled um, <clears throat> the number of employees significantly, and that as the economy continued to start to improve. Um, they realized they needed more help, but didn't want to commit to full-time employment. I think that's going to be a continuing trend and uh, employers are looking for uh, more on-demand solutions and not tying employees into, uh, tying themselves into employment uh, with, with people for long-term. Well, if you hire someone, you're, you're op- opening yourself up to tremendous number of uh, regulations and health care, obviously. But, but on a project basis, do you, <clears throat> do you think that um, uh, uh, there'll be a, a movement to kind of uh, regulate parts of this uh, industry in the coming uh, years? Yes, I do. And... I think one of the challenges that we're struggling through as as a an economy is we really only have two defined roles for employer employee. It's employees, full-time employees on a W-2 or 1099 as a contractor. And 1099 doesn't necessarily fit with all project or hourly based work. So. I think there needs to be some work on a, on a compliance or regulatory level to make it easier for employers and employees. Well, uh, the, the, go ahead. No, you first, you're the guest. <laughs> um, the, the IRS sort of pushes employers to categorize employees as either a W2 or a 1099. And the, the, push is to get people away from 1099 because it's harder for the IRS to to regulate and, and monitor than it is W-2 uh, because taxes are collected. With a W-2, taxes are collected at the time of employee payment, or at least a portion of the taxes are. With 1099, that's not the case. So the IRS is pushing against people moving to 1099, and I, I think there needs to be a better solution. Mm. Well, uh, what are the, uh, um, I have several questions, but uh, I guess the first one is, what are the advantages to the uh, employee of to being in, in, in such a situation as this? Well, number one is flexibility uh, and, and variety of, of work. Um, I think as our generations have change their perspective on what an employer-employee relationship is. It's um, 
the 1099 or contract or project model provides an opportunity for people to move from one project or employer to another. So they, if, if they if they like the project, it may get extended and they can work longer with the employer. If they're looking for something different, hopefully the, another project comes up and, and they can move on with, with ease. So um, I think flexibility is, is one of the the greatest benefits and and it has been for me um, time with my my children and and um, working when I want to and certainly meeting the employers demands but when I want to has been very very beneficial well um, but, but the question is you're sacrificing uh, quote security but is there really security in today's world Great question. I don't think there is. <laughs> um, as, um, as many as people realize every day, um, people lose their jobs and they thought they had a secure position and they don't. And often employees have been in a role for several years and haven't networked and, and kept up their resume and, and prepared for the next step. And I think that it's important for people to do that, but unfortunately they don't. So, uh, but how do you guarantee payment? I'm sorry, how do you employee? guarantee payment? Yes. Well, we, we have contracts with the employer and, and, uh, so our, our contract is with the employer and then we have a separate contract with the contractor. And if an employer doesn't pay, we, we will, um, seek other alternatives to collect, but uh, ultimately we're going to work to make sure the contractor gets paid and um, and the, uh, the challenge with being a contractor often is working with employers that don't, that don't pay. And I've experienced it myself. I, I had one client that I worked for um, on a project basis on and off for a couple of years and had incurred a, a large receivable from them and and they didn't pay and and then they filed bankruptcy and I really had no recourse but as a, with a contractor working through us vouched in we have the opportunity to, to um, review the employer and and their credit uh, stability before they join the platform and if they're not uh, performing their end of the deal for contractors, so not paying timely or not um, providing the resources the contractor needs to get the job done, we'll indicate that in our in the profile, and and if it continues, they'll be moved off the platform. We we won't continue to connect contractors with them. Hmm. But um, uh, well, how do you make your money as a percentage of the contract? Yes. 15%, uh, flat 15% uh, of the contract. So uh, staffing firms typically charge 30 to 70%. And um, and it's really, I've often said staffing firms are like the used car salesman of 20 years ago, where this car salesman had the knowledge of, of both sides. And, and, and with the staffing firms now, Staffing firms know what the employer is paying, and and they're going to look for a contractor that meets the minimum requirements and can get the job done at the lowest rate. So they'll 
try to negotiate the contractor down to the lowest rate they can because they take the margin between the, what the employer is paying and the contractor receives. With us, it's transparent. It's 15%, and uh, it's worked very well. Uh, contractors are happy with it. Employers are happy with it. Well, we spell out your uh, your website for our, our listeners. Yes, it's V as in Victor, O-U-C-H-E-D-I-N.com, vouched in. Uh, we, we took the, the name uh, vouch from uh, sort of an accounting term of a voucher uh, and also uh, from the fact that to vouch for someone is to speak for them or to, to certify them. And so we do reference checks and background checks on contractors that join. Um, background checks are, are elected, but um, we, we certainly will do it if the employer is looking for that. So uh, it's really making sure that they're not just someone off the street, but they've been vetted and and that they are who they say they are. We're talking with Dan Gaff Gaffney, uh, Gaffey. Yep. He's um, pre Gaffney. president. Gaff Gaffney or Gaffney? Yeah, Gaffney, G-A-F-F-N-E-Y, Gaffney. <laughs> oh, that's why. You know what I did? I misspelled your name on my sheet. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. So I've got, I've got to go, go change that. So, uh, but now, having, having said that, um, there are many, um, I'd I'd like to go a little deeper into that, uh, uh the subject of, uh, the, the gig economy, uh, et cetera, because um, uh, it, it's something uh, uh, small business owners, uh, one of their problems obviously is the, uh, the Affordable Care Act, which may, which uh, uh, hits in if they hit under 50 employees, if they go above 50 employees. So um, do you see some of these uh, laws encouraging um, uh, small businesses not to uh, to use in effect your system or other system, uh, others like yours um i think that the affordable care act has been somewhat beneficial for people that are choosing contract work uh, it provides uh, better options for uh, health insurance although uh, there needs to be m more options that are affordable but i think it's moving in the right direction um, that employers don't need to control the, the insurance products for, for um, people, but they can handle it better on their own with, with more options. So um, I think affordable care has a little ways to, to go yet, but uh, it was a step in the right direction. Hmm. Well, well, you're now primarily in accounting and finance, and you're going to expand outward. Um, what are some of the questions uh, a small business owner, uh, 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 actual characteristics that a small business owner looks for in a uh, an engagement with you? What types of people do they usually look for? Uh, well, they're looking for someone that can come in and get the job done, uh, that has lower ramp up time, so a, a shorter learning curve because they have deeper experience in a certain area, uh, or it may be that the business is growing and they've taken on new, new 
um, areas of responsibility as an employer that they need to beef up their their staff. So they're really looking for expertise in a certain area or role that can come in uh, and meet the need on a short-term basis. And if it turns out that it turns into a longer-term role, uh, the contract can be extended. And if the employer wants to hire the contractor as an employee, we provide that as an option too. Um, we have a, a limit of uh, 15% of the contract, 15% uh, uh, of the annual salary or up to $10,000. So we really keep it affordable for the employer and make it um, the transition a simple process. Well, well, let me ask you, what's to prevent someone from uh, taking a short-term assignment and then um, uh, the employers calling him or her up on the phone and say, uh, we don't want to pay Vapchin anymore, we want to pay you directly? Um, well, the, what's the, the, employer's agree the employer's agreement with us up front was, is that if they're taking them off the platform, it's a it, as I mentioned, 15% of salary up to $10,000. If they choose to do it um, without our knowledge, um, at this point, we we can't really stop that, but um, we don't really want people or employers like that as part of our network anyway. So uh, we would remove the contractor and the employer and not do business with them again. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and either... In either case, it's it's um, it's short-sighted on the employer's part because if the next time they need someone, if we're not an option, they'll likely pay more somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And on the contractor side, if they're in need of um, a project again, um, we're not going to be a resource for them either. Well, um, Cam, you've obviously grown your business. We always ask this. What have you? What are the three things you would um, tell other small business owners that you've learned that can help them grow? Um, well, one would be to uh, continue to develop your customer base and and treat your customers fairly uh, and responsibly, so that you have continuing business with those customers. Um, second would be um, pro uh, provide the right people for projects or for um, serving the client's needs. So make sure that you have the right expertise on board and can answer the, the needs of your clients or customers. And third, I guess, would be um, stick with it because sometimes there are, there are tougher times and sometimes there are, are, are stronger times in um, in any uh, economy and in any uh, business. So uh, stick with it and, and stay focused. Hmm. Well, are you enjoying yourself running your company? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and and that's, that's a key for, for anyone. I think you need to be happy with what you're doing and, and enjoy it. So, yes, I am, because I feel like I'm helping people to make uh, a better rate, make more money uh, on, in contractor roles, and I feel like I'm serving employers with costing them less to meet the needs they need. Hmm. Oh, we're talking with Dan Gaffney. Uh, he's uh, president of Vouched In. Uh, 
it's for uh, small for businesses and individuals. Um, I, I keep using the word gig economy because that's what I learned. But but we're talking about project oriented hiring, and uh, we want you to come back, Dan, um, uh, in the coming year and talk about how things are uh, changing as this new administration comes in into office. Okay. I'd love to do that. Thank you. Okay. Um, our next guest. All right. Have a great day. Thank is, you. Cam, you have a great day and come again. Our next guest is Suzanne uh, Paling. I hope I pronounced it right, Suzanne. You did. Paling. Paling. She's here to talk about the sales leadership problem solver, which you are. Um, uh, Suzanne, welcome to the program. Thanks, Don. I appreciate you inviting me. Well, uh, I have to tell our audience that uh, you came on on short notice because um, our previously scheduled guests could not make it. But we're happy to have you because once I saw the title of your book, The Sales Leader's Problem Solver, Practical solutions to con to conquering management mess ups. I had to have you on the program. Well, I'm glad you did. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Suzanne, tell us first a little bit about yourself personally, your background, and how you came to write the book. I'm a career salesperson and sales manager. I began my sales career as a field rep covering New England for consumer products companies, and then moved into professional publishing where I sold for a period of time and then became a sales manager. 20 years ago, I started my business, Sales Management Services, and I provide sales management advice and assistance to smaller-sized companies looking to increase revenue by improving their sales organization's performance. That's insane. What a great elevator pitch. Uh, so where are you located? I live and work in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. And what's the name of your website? www.salesmanagementservices.com. Well, that certainly, that certainly says what you do. Now, tell us about your book and, and what are your main thrusts. And, uh, and please go as long as you want. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Don. I look at, in my book, The Sales Leader's Problem Solver, I look at 15 of the most common problems sales leaders face, such as the rep that won't prospect for new business or the rep that spends too much time on social media. And I walk sales leaders through the process of solving the problem. I show them how to clarify the issue, get the facts, create a plan, strategize with their direct supervisor, and then meet with the rep. Wow. So, so take one or two and tell us the problem and how to solve it. Sure. I take a look at the problem, for instance, of a rep who spends too much time on social media. And I encourage the sales man, whoever's managing the salesperson, to first look at the facts. How much time do they spend on social media? How much time do they spend on social media as compared to others in the group? How is it affecting their close ratio? Are they able to make quota? You know, are they effective in their use of all this social media? 
And then I say to managers, how would you solve the problem? Forget about whether or not your supervisor would allow you to solve it. How would you go about solving it? And then create a plan. Gather all the facts that you've been looking at, put a plan together, and then approach your direct supervisor with the plan. Tell them about the problem, tell them about the individual rep, and outline for them how you would go about solving the problem. Get their okay, get their approval. If you have to compromise anywhere, go ahead and compromise with them. And then begin the process of meeting with the rep to solve this problem once you have a strategy all mapped out. Hmm. Well, let me ask you, uh, um, what is the role of the sales organization vis-a-vis uh, social media? So, uh, some organizations I'm talking about seem to think that social media is the be-all, end-all answer to everything. What do you think? It isn't. It isn't. It is part of our society. It's part of doing business today. But it is not the end-all and the be-all. You still need all of your other sales skills. And you need to bring those to the party as well. Social media needs to fit in amongst your ability to pick up the phone and make a cold call, your ability to make a presentation, your ability to close the sale. We refer to sales reps that spend too much time on social media as librarians. And often they get paralyzed by needing more and more and more information before they can pick up the phone or send an email. So it is not the end-all and the be-all. Well, it isn't, but it is. Well, for instance, the personal contact in today's world seems to be a lost art. Yes. How, do you, uh, how do you address that? You need to start, especially with some of the younger reps, in teaching them how to make a phone call and how to have a live conversation with a prospect. The phone is not dead and cold calling is not dead. They just need to learn how to make the call correctly and, and get over there some of their inhibition about making a call. Well, what I've noticed um, is a marked drop-off in uh, uh, personal communications, uh, uh, especially amongst the PR, uh, PR and other people, the young people. Uh, Sometimes they seem surprised that they even ha- got me on the phone. Is that uh, uh, one of the things that you're seeing happening? Yes, they will make a phone call sometimes under duress. Sometimes their manager you know, forces them to pick up the phone. And then they do get someone on the phone, and they don't exactly know what to do. They feel awkward and uncomfortable. Well, okay. Well, can we go a little to that? Oh, um, you and I, I think, are old enough to remember a time when we could get on the phone and uh, uh, talk to people. What are some, um, uh, there was a, uh, I always go back to uh, um, someone who's now passed who said when he works a booth, for instance, at a show, he always starts with the first question, why are you here at the show? And, and to get somebody engaged. What are some of the things that you can do to, uh, uh, to get people engaged? Are you there? Yes, I'm right here. I, I, uh, oh, I'm sorry. My phone was, uh, 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 I failed to get a quiet my phone. But uh, anyway, wow. what are some of the things you can do to, once you get somebody on a phone 
to engage them? What I recommend that sales managers do is work with the rep to create, you know, between three and five open-ended questions that they can ask the prospect right away to get the process moving so that the rep is prepared to start a conversation with them. Um, could, okay, uh, let, me, let me go a little sideways. Uh, uh, what are some of the other things that you say in your book that, pe that uh, sales managers should do? Well, the, uh, the audience for the book, the, biggest, the book is written for anyone managing a salesperson or sales staff. Sales leaders usually hold the title of sales manager, director of sales, VP of sales, company owners, presidents, and CEOs also sometimes manage the sales staff and are certainly sales leaders in their own right when that is the case. But what I, what I find is that sales leaders sometimes decide to have a heart-to-heart -heart with a rep about a problem. The rep improves for a period of time, the sales manager gets busy, the rep reverts to their old behavior, and they're back to where they started. The other reps see this happen, they start taking the sales manager less seriously, and a culture of non-accountability develops. I've seen that happen um, a number of times. Yes, um, yes, we probably all have. What about well? If it's big today, what about the uh, the 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 seeming gap um, between the sexes? Um, the, the, do you address the issues, for instance, of women manager and and uh, male um, uh, salespeople? And, so, and, and um, despite all the progress we made, some resentment on the part of males from taking direction from females? You know, I don't. In the book, there's 15 chapters, and in each chapter, there's a story about the problem. And sometimes the woman is a leader, sometimes a sales rep, and sometimes there's a male sales manager and a female sales rep. It, it gets all mixed around. So no, I don't address that issue at all. Okay. Well, well what a, um, give us another issue. Yeah, your, your, your book um, is fascinating because it's so necessary in today's world. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to a, a conference after the show is over and um, a major conference uh, exhibit. And to me, it's the, the most artificial of situations. You're walking down an aisle and there's uh, literally you know, hundreds of, of uh, booths uh, and uh, people trying to get and attract your attention. And, and it seems like it's um, a very difficult sales situation, yet one that must uh, generate results. That's one example. I mean, can you give us other examples or from your book? Uh, examples of? Uh, of anything. Um, uh, you're the guest. I'm talking too much in this uh, interview. Uh, I, I want our readers to get a, uh, our listeners to get a, f a flavor for your book because it's a, a, a fascinating topic and one that I know is very necessary in today's world. And, and you would like an example of? Well, from the book that you use, um, that you, you use in your book, uh, and how, uh, how you diffused it or, or handled it. Okay, an example of another problem? 
Yes. Okay. Um, you could take, for instance, the sales rep that absolutely will not prospect for new business. And again, each I take each problem and look at it the same way. I ask the um, sales leader to qualify the problem, isolate the problem, what really is happening here, and then gather their data and look at the situation. Um, how does this rep compare to others? Has their situation improved over time? Has it gotten worse over time? How many cold calls, if any, do they make? How many other cold calls do the other reps make? How are they in terms of um, hitting their quota? And then I, same thing with the other problem, I tell them to just solve it. Just think in their own mind, how would I solve this if there were no limitations on me at all? And they, I then encourage them to put it in report form and bring it to their direct supervisor, talk it over with them, decide mutually what they want to do, make compromises if necessary, get the uh, solution for the problem together, and then, again, approach this rep and say to the rep, we have a problem here. You know, you don't do any prospecting for new business. And this is how you match up against your peers. This is the amount of effort we need you to put into the cold calling and start to address and solve the problem. And also let the rep know that they really do want to solve the problem and there's a time frame on this. And if within a reasonable period of time the rep can't start making cold calls, unfortunately they might have to put them on warning and then ultimately terminate their employment. You know, you, you use that um, that example and I'm, I'm uh, and then uh, I wish I had that solution, but I, I had a, a rep who um, um, had been there so long that he had cherry-picked all of the good accounts and uh, made a very good living on the re repeating accounts, but never cold-called or did anything new. And mm -hmm. oh, but, um, but HR would not allow us to fire him because they kept saying he was always profitable. Of course he was profitable. He had all the good accounts. Um, yes. Uh, how do you handle that situation? I have a chapter in the book. I call it the uh, fiefdom, where the sales rep has all the great accounts. They've feathered their own nest, and they uh, have all, you know, they're making all the money, and, and everyone else is struggling. And what I talk about in the book is the fact that you can only do that for so long, and then suddenly the company can't grow anymore. There's only so many hours this individual can work. There's only so many accounts they can call on. You're, you start having trouble hiring people. The territories get misaligned. And so I walk the sales leader through the process of taking some of the accounts away from that rep, re, um, looking at the territories differently, and creating a more fair situation for everyone to work in. Because that does happen all the time. I call it the fiefdom rep. It's very common. It's one of the 15 problems I talk about. Well, um, what if management won? Oh, uh, I'm playing devil advocate. I'm actually playing out the scenario that happened in this case. What if management won't let you uh, make the changes? He's been here so long. Why, uh, why, why rock the boat, et cetera? And if uh, he's so tight with his clients, we may lose lose them. What do you do in a case like that? 
I encourage, and that does happen, and it happens all the time, Don, as you well know, I encourage them to gather a lot of data and make their case and say, you know, you're charging me with this quota, and yet you have this one rep who's taking all the best accounts. This is the best production I can expect from these other reps. If you really want me to grow and hit this quota, this is what I need. And so prove the case with a lot of data, you know, uh, turnover rates, uh, reps that are unable to achieve quota, market share, the um, disproportionate number of accounts this rep has. Just keep going after the facts. What are some of the, the titles of some of your other chapters? Because it's fascinating. Well, I will. There's the inconsistent sales rep. There's the rep who sells only to existing customers. Social media paralysis, which we talked about. The salesperson fiefdom, which we just discussed. The trouble with titles, because a lot of sales reps now want to have titles that in no way reflect their sales responsibility. Their CRM noncompliance, the rep who will not put uh, any information into CRM. There's the mysterious remote salesperson. Let's say your office is in Boston and you've hired someone to work in the Midwest and you're having a lot of trouble tracking their progress and seeing how they're doing. There's unethical behavior. There's the rep who cheats on a sales contest. There's misaligned territories. There's the selling sales manager, the superstar sales manager, the loosely defined sales cycle in which all of the reps have a different way that they approach the sale. There's the mediocre rep, the unqualified vice president of sales, and the high base salary. Wow. Well, you've hit uh, most of the things that I've <laughs> that I've faced as a sales manager in the past. Uh, I don't know. Um, I have to get your book now just to find out whether I, I did it right or not. Um, um, uh, I, I have had another uh, question. What made, what made motivated you to write the book? Every year I see really strong salespeople get promoted to a sales leadership position, receive little or no training, and then just be expected to do their job. They put in long hours trying to figure out what to do. Often they just don't know how to go about solving some of the most common sales staff problems. As they progress in their career, especially if they work for smaller sized companies, they don't have any type of mentor with sales management experience. They need guidance on handling a tricky issue and wish they had a toll-free number for a sales management hotline so they could talk to someone about it. So I hope my new book, The Sales Leader's Problem Solver, provide some of that help and assistance, coaching and mentoring. Hmm. Um, um, the name of your book again, where people can get it, so, uh, it certainly whetted my appetite. Oh, good. I'm so glad. It's The Sales Leader's Problem Solver, and it's available on Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble, and it is in bookstores. Is it an ebook or do you also have a, um, a printed copy? Printed ebook. There'll be a book on tape. Mm. Are, are you going to do the tape? No. You have, did that. Uh, oh, you, no, you have a great voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But someone else read the book. 
Well, uh, you might, <laughs> well, um, uh, you do, um, um, you, um, well, you might have heard from our last guest, uh, you, you, you have your own company, you've been around for a while. What are the three mm-hmm. things you've learned that you'd love to pass on to other people? That's a really good question. One of the things I've learned is that managing salespeople means sitting in judgment. You have to be able to hold reps accountable and take appropriate action when goals aren't met. And some people find that con- that uh, whole concept very difficult to deal with. The other thing I've learned is that to have a successful relationship with a sales representative, you have to be fully prepared before they come on board. Everything has to be in place minimum standards, the job description, the compensation plan, their territory, all everything has to be in place before they come on board. It, the other thing I've learned is if you know it isn't working, solve the problem. If you've hired a rep, no matter how much time and effort you've put into it, if you know they aren't the right person for the job, make that decision fast. If you're going to fail, fail fast. Don't hang on to a rep that you know isn't going to get the job done, and then eight, nine, ten months later, they're still there and you're still unhappy. Yeah, the size of this decision-making seems to be one of the key points coming out now. But uh, let me ask you, uh, mm-hmm. in our, it seems in our society uh, we're, we're kind of sure coding everything, um, not uh, teaching our people to make decisive decisions that's what I'm, I'm 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 seeing the beginning out of it do you see that happening i definitely do i see a trend of people afraid to critique employees afraid to hold them accountable and then ultimately afraid to terminate them if things aren't working out hmm. well, it's a sad statement but true uh suzanne uh, we're, we're talking with Suzanne Paley, Paling. Uh, she's mm-hmm. got a terrific book, The Sales Leader's Problem Solver. And uh, she's given us an awful lot to think about today. Uh, Suzanne, thank you for joining us. Well, Don, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. I enjoyed our conversation. Well, and I look forward to seeing to reading your book. Um, my days of being a sales manager are over, but I still... I think you, you've just um, raised so many good issues that uh, I have to read it now. Oh, thank you so much. Let me know how you like it. I will. And thank you again. Come again. I will. Thank you very much, Don. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture.